From Vinepairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vinepair Podcast. So, I mean, I have an article I'm dying to talk about. We oh. don't have to get into mine first of what uh, I've been reading. And it's not the one Zach wrote. Oh. <laughs> oh! I thought that Zach would talk about the one that he wrote. No, Zach, that would you did be... publish a good piece this week. Thank you. On the, on That'd the site. That'd be weird, Adam. If Zach talked about it? Yeah. Why? Well, as, as the well, I guess Joanna is, has her now has her. You don't you don't write things for the site anymore, Adam. We don't we don't ever have this opportunity for you to talk about you know the thing oh, you I wrote. Had, I had a screed I wanted to write recently, but I was like, <laughs> you saved it. My for the favorite pod. thing is when when Adam just sends me drafts and is like, I wrote this thing. Yeah, I almost did it today <laughs> with this with these fucking food courts. I was I was expecting that. I think I saw what you wrote and I was like, oh, he should write something. I might. I might. <laughs> So Zach wrote a great piece this week about the succession plans at family wineries in America and how different that is from uh, Europe. I thought it was interesting, too, because you you talked a lot about um, how bigger corporate money kind of plays in this world mm. some, somewhat in terms of like some of these places, some of these, these family wineries become pretty well known. And then there's always this decision of whether you sell or you don't and like the kids sort of have a deciding factor in that in oh. a way. But then also it's like. Some of the kids just have no interest and also like the American ideal that you shouldn't pressure your kids to be in the same career path that you are. Although I think it's interesting because I think some people would argue against that, right? In America, they they, they feel like they were pressured to do a similar career to their parents. Um, I think sometimes the pressure is there, but it's the children who who feel more empowered to say no Yeah, in this generation, for sure. Totally. As like a child of a family business owner. Like I very consciously made the decision to not get into the family business, even though my brother did. But after some years of deciding he didn't want to do that. You right. Know? And then it's like, I'm going to go back and do it. Right. <clears throat> right. And that there was a lot in this piece, too, of people yeah. who had done that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was interesting because definitely a, a sort of ran the gamut in, in terms of people I talked to of when there was a, a succeeding generation, you know, in a couple of cases, it was a person or people who. You know, kids who knew they were going wanted to do it for you know kind of their plan all along. A couple others where it was like, hey, we're gonna come back to this as it turns out. But I think the thing that was interesting, you know, you mentioned Adam the the corporate money where and when and where that cropped up. But I think that the the thing that I didn't have a chance to fully get into in that piece, just because it sort of would have been a a big tangent, is for a lot of wineries where there isn't a family to step in, there is no succession plan. And that right, right. is the really interesting thing, right? Because there's a lot of these wineries out there that are where the the founding generation is long in the tooth and they either didn't have kids or their kids don't want to run the business or they don't, they're not equipped to. And the truth is, is that for the, even the example in the piece of a winery where they did have an offer on the table to buy them out, that's a not a, a something of a rarity. And granted, some of the people yeah, I talked true. to never truly explored what it would be like to sell because they their kids did want in and they didn't really ever go down yeah. that road. But I think that there are fewer there. Are, unfortunately, that that is not always an off ramp that might be available to some or many family owned wineries. If they're if the because the other option is, like we said, you know, to pass it on or to sell the property if you have it to someone who's going to do something entirely different. And, you know, as much as selling to a corporate uh, wine, you know, to a big wine company might be a little bit hard for some of these people. I think selling to a developer who's going to, you know, tear out your vineyards and put build houses on it it's probably a little harder to swallow 
Yeah. There are interesting parallels in craft beer, too. And yes. Dave uh, Infante explored those in a hop take column last year. It's super interesting as well. Yeah. I, I thought it was, a, it was a good piece, Zach. Thank you. Which piece do you want to talk about, Adam? Oh. I want to talk about the piece that uh, explores a brand that I have never understood <laughs> since they came to the office to do a tasting in the middle of COVID, which is empirical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, thought, I, I, I thought that Aaron did an incredible job with this piece like and basically explores all the same issues that i've had with it like this is a brand this basically is proof that you for all the marketers that probably listen to this podcast i think empirical is the perfect proof of a brand that goes viral constantly but now just went bankrupt in copenhagen but only in copenhagen yeah well okay they're gonna not bankrupt in the u.s but they're clearly not doing well where they're actually from um i never understood what their whole deal was Mm -hmm. I never found the liquid to be that good. I think that there was a few times, like Aaron said, where I've had a cocktail and I'm like, what's in this? And then you learn that there's empirical, it has something to do with the cocktail. But the liquids are so esoteric that I almost see them now as like a ingredient shop for high-end bars, right? Like the bar comes to you and says like, they're, they're a bespoke producer for a, for high-end cocktail programs, right? The mm-hmm. a cocktail program can come to you and say, hey, we're double chicken, please, and we're we're trying to do this cocktail, we're looking for this specific flavor in a liquor, liqueur or something, and then Empirical can make that for them. Mm-hmm. And it can be proprietary to the menu of double chicken, please, et cetera. But I don't think that it's ever going to be a company or a brand that will go into the mainstream where consumers will drink for the you know reasons that Aaron talks about. Like, there's no use for this stuff. Yeah. Like at home, it's at really home, hard. at all. Like yeah. so, and the sort of the impetus for the piece, right, is that they went viral again. They've they've gone viral for a lot of different things. Uh, spears that they've created over the last four years, including the "fuck you, Donald Trump" and your fucking wall mm-hmm. um, spear. That's literally what the name was of it. Yeah. Uh, but then their most recent one is their Doritos spirit, mm-hmm. where they've infused the actual flavor of nacho cheese Doritos into the spirit, and they partnered with Doritos. I kind of think this was 100% a marketing uh, scam that, like, basically Doritos probably did in partnership with another, with an ad agency, and then, like, they worked with mm. maybe a, you know, creative agency and approach Empirical, someone new to approach Empirical, uh, but they're they're treating it like it's a very serious liquid. Uh, it does taste like nacho cheese Doritos. Oh, you've had it. It's right here. I know. I thought we were doing an unboxing, and we haven't had it yet. Oh, because we shot it. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So... Um, it tastes like nacho cheese Doritos, but like, do we need that? <laughs> and like, you know, what is that going to be like a nacho cheese? You're going to add that to a margarita and have like a nacho cheese margarita. Like, I, I just it doesn't really make a lot of sense for what. Like, I guess you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Mm-hmm. And I think that is 100 percent empirical. Like, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And a lot of the things they do are just kind of ridiculous, and I don't fully understand it. And most people, even most bar programs I go to where they have a bottle, if I ask them about it, they don't, they're not using it. Like, oh, yeah, we brought it in because it was interesting. And, like, they're not using it currently. And I don't know. I just thought the piece that Aaron wrote was very good at, at really sort of shedding light on this idea, right? That just because you can do something and you get a lot of press doesn't mean you're going to be successful. You're actually creating a brand that people want to drink and a liquid that is pleasurable to the majority of consumers. Yeah. You're you're doing something for clicks. I mean, like, empirical literally is the definition of clickbait for the alcohol world. Yeah. It, like, kind of exists to go viral. Yeah. For viral publicity. And that 
that's not really helping anyone. Anyways, I thought it was a good piece. What, yeah. about, what about you? I also like that piece. I like Josh Bernstein's piece on IPAs of the past and mm. why many sub-styles didn't and couldn't survive. I was a really big fan of brewed IPAs. Yeah, I think a lot of people were. It's kind of interesting and maybe ties into, I don't know what we're talking about today, but something that we'll be talking about soon about this you idea that- You don't know what we're talking about today? I don't know. That don't know if, we're talking about groupthink. We're talking about groupthink. Okay, yeah. That if people don't drink things, enough yeah. people don't drink things, they're not going to survive. Yes. And uh, yeah, I think we've definitely, and and I thought the most interesting piece, uh, part of what he was exploring in that piece is, you know, how- how a lot of these substyles were marketed mm-hmm. and how they were very confusing to people. And so as a result, they like didn't, couldn't survive, right? Like oat, oat milk IPA um, that what's his face did. Uh, Sam Calhoun. Yeah. 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 Um, of, dogfish. of dogfish head and how that was like, seemed like it was a great idea because oat milk was so popular, but yeah. then like totally fell flat and they discontinued it, but things like that. And I, I am. Um, yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, Hazio. also, I mean, Thank you. no, no shades, Sam, but Hazy wasn't very good either. But I didn't like it. It wasn't for me. But I think when it came out, I was like, "What? <laughs> oat milk? I oat milk?" They okay. were like leaning to the fact that so many people were using oats yes. to make the beers hazy, and they're just like, "Yeah, we're like leaning in, and it has oat milk in it." And I was like, "Yep, yeah, but this isn't very good." Yeah, but okay. Yeah. Um, so I like that piece a lot. What about you, Zach? You know, I think the the piece that I was drawn to this past week was Hannah's piece about Primox, um, which I think is this fascinating, you know, it's like a, it's a weird unsolved mystery of the wine world. Um, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, premature oxidation, which is a sort of fault that has affected a lot of white Burgundy over the last two decades. Um, and still kind of unclear what the explanation is for kind of what causes it. It's possibly several different concurrent factors or things like that. It's been, Unfortunately, the case for me where I've had the, uh, you know, experience a few times of opening bottles of white burgundy that show signs or in one case, like glaring premox. And it's just unfortunate because these, you know, in many cases, very intentionally crafted and frankly, pretty expensive bottles are, if not undrinkable, they're just not very pleasurable to to drink. And that that sucks. But it's always something to be aware of when kind of looking at that part of the of the white wine world. And uh, yeah, that was a good kind of overview. Yeah, she she does so. a really good job getting into that nerdy stuff. Yeah, she does. <laughs> um, uh, you can see why I liked it. <laughs> so, uh, so, Jack, you have today's topic. I do. So, uh, Joanna, I'm insulted you didn't remember, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Anyhow, yeah, I, so the thing that I wanted to discuss is a sort of not a new, but I think a, a, a particularly relevant phenomenon of late, which is evidence of a lot of kind of groupthink in the, I think you see it in both uh, sort of sommelier and, and sort of wine buyer circles and also in, and I think in, in sort of bartender beverage director circles where product in, and specifically, I think of like a lot of individual wines, like, you know, to come back to my example before of white burgundy, where you see a few producers and a few specific bottlings being heavily, heavily coveted and yet and thus and thus kind of and especially in those areas where there's very little supply or, or limited supply, both kind of globally and in specific markets, kind of driving prices up, creating these sort of allocations around 
bottles that only a few years ago might have been readily available. And it seems to be happening from where I sit, not because the community has as a whole, like, tasted through all these different expressions of, say, again, white burgundy or Barolo or, you know, um, bottled in bond bourbon or whatever, and decided, like, hey, man, we just think this one is the best and, like, we want the best. It's more like a kind of feeding frenzy where it starts to get a little bit popular and everyone decides, hey, I have to have this bottle on my list. I have to have this on my back bar. And I just find this whole thing really weird. I, I, I Weird on two levels. One, I mean, far be it for me to tell people how to do their job, but I'm about to do it. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the perks of being in that kind of role in a restaurant, in a bar, et cetera, is you, in most cases, have the opportunity to and the privilege to try a lot of wine or spirits or whatever. And if you don't deploy that ability to build out your list, to me, you're kind of missing, in a lot of cases, one of, like I said, one of the perks that comes with that kind of job is to have the opportunity to have sales reps and whatnot, to go to tastings and try all this stuff and make your own decisions about what you think is good and what you think is great and what you think is great for the price, et cetera. But also, in a way, you are also failing to do the job that you're, the people who employ you probably want you to do, and most especially the job that I think you should be doing for your guests, which is to find them, in most cases, that optimal balance point between quality and value. And where you land on those things on any given product is, of course, going to vary. And there's no law that says that it's wrong to have and I don't think it is wrong to have a few bottles that someone is going to buy because they recognize the label, they've heard it's, you know, the best, it's super popular, however you want to kind of assess those things. It's, you know, it's on the the cool Psalm Instagram pages, whatever, right? That was that was more in the past. I don't know if that still kind of does it the same way. But 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 most of all, I just find it disappointing that a community that has a lot of product knowledge, that has a lot of access, seems to not be putting it to much use. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the easy answer for this is that we are a species that moves in groups, right? Like we are pack animals at the end of the day, and it is a lot easier at, to swim with the current than against it in in, in, all, in all careers, right? In all things. Yeah. And this – and beverage alcohol is not – immune from that right there is in art in fashion in business in politics like you kind of go with the flow and there is a lot of fear for the success of your career with with going against what everyone else is doing right which is why like in new york in the early 2010s we saw lots of beaujolais focus lists because a bunch of people yeah. were doing it, and then we moved to natural wine because a bunch of people were doing it. Like, funny story actually there. Like, last week I was at a very trendy new wine bar slash restaurant uh, in Manhattan with someone else who works at Vine Pair, and we were sitting at the bar, and uh, they came over with the list, and the other employee who some people may know from this uh, story were like, was like, I want only clean. I only want clean. Please don't give me any wine that's not clean. <laughs> and the Somme brought over a bottle of wine. We opened it. It was this amazing Austrian, uh, I mean, sorry, Alsatian Riesling. And then after 
she saw we were enjoying it. She said, by the way, I want to thank you so much for asking for clean wine. I hate this list. Oh. <laughs> but like that's the ethos of this restaurant because the belief is in this neighborhood. We mm-hmm. were in the, the Lower East Side that we had to be a, a natural wine yeah. bar. And I think that's what that is, right? There is a lot of groupthink um, in a majority. And like only when you think it's a safe space can you be honest, right? So this sommelier realized it was a safe space and we said something. And like the opposite could have happened, right? We could have said that to her and she could have been rude to us and been like, you don't like these kinds of wines. We don't have clean wines here. You You know, this, we don't have conventional wines here, right? Like we happened to meet someone who felt the same way as we did. But I think a lot of this is just honestly basic human nature. And it's very hard to break out against because it's much easier to copy. Like if you, even yeah. look at what is happening currently in tequila. We've talked about this before. Like everyone is copying yeah. because there's less risk. No one loses their job yep. over that. Yeah. If you copy and it fails, you don't necessarily lose your job. If you try to do something incredibly innovative in the other way, you potentially lose your job. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we talked about this in the world of media. Like we were very different than a lot of our competitors and a lot of other cool kid media companies in the you know in 2014 when we started when we were investing in journalism and stories and long form and design and whatever and everyone else was like dude just go viral just go viral just go viral and invest in facebook and invest in crazy amounts of facebook video and whatever and we didn't but that was a really scary point to be in because we could have been wrong Mm -hmm. instead a lot of those places went out of business like the mics and things like that of the past but that's kind of it's not as easy. It's a lot easier to just buy the stuff everyone else is buying and go with the stuff that everyone else is going with because that's human nature. Yeah. I think in many cases, it's too risky to break out from what others are doing. I think there are professional and business implications for that (laughs) as well. If you don't follow the trends, I think from a consumer point of view and also from the trade point of view too, like if you don't follow the trends, then you're not, it seems like you're not in the know. To yep. consumers, especially that if you you're like you're the only place that doesn't have an espresso martini on your menu right now, then you're leaving money on the table exactly. as well, which isn't good for your employer. But then I also think that a lot of times people prey on people who do, do who do things differently, and that that is kind of from the trade point of view where I think this is also very risky. And if you don't have a certain amount of popularity, where people are going to just buy into whatever you're doing amongst your peers, then it's it's just ultra risky to do something differently. I mean, I read a quote recently, like, now there are people opening bars that don't want to be known as natural wine bars. But three <laughs> years ago, even, if you did not call yourself a natural wine bar, then especially, like, mainstream press, the Vogues and whatever, they were not covering you. Yeah. Like, natural wine bars were the only kind of wine bars that anyone said they wanted to drink at. Now that has a negative connotation because of the kind of wines that have been served at those bars and the way customers have been treated. So now people just want to be like, fun places to drink wine and get fucked up and like hang out and dance to DJs. Like It's a different mm-hmm. aesthetic people are going for if they're trying to do something different and they're openly saying they don't want to be called natural wine bars. So, yeah. But that also is groupthink, right? That full movement, there were people that didn't want to be called natural wine bars six, seven years ago and they were the minority, and as Joanna's saying, like th- a lot of them were derided for it. Mm-hmm. And now, yeah. people in this, mo- you know, the larger wine community has decided 
it's okay to openly not like natural wine mm-hmm. and to say that that natural wine there are flaws in it and to say that you can be all for organic and biodynamic etc and wines that are made for the good of the earth but that also are clean and actually taste of the place they were they were grown and i think that's we're still fine. we're still getting there we are right. but it's happening a lot more yeah it's happening a lot more yeah and that's groupthink mm-hmm but I, I, yeah, I mean, I think you're definitely right when it comes to some of these bigger, when you kind of step outside of an individual bottling or an individual selection or an individual ingredient in the cocktail, I think, where you're right that, that trends offer a sort of herd, you know, a security of being in a herd, right? Like you are, you are protected from some of the risk that comes from being uh, someone who's doing something on their own that you just are not going to connect with guests or they that your product is going to fail, et cetera. But I, but again, I, I keep being kind of baffled at like, there's a way in which when I started out in this industry, you could look at a lot of wine lists and restaurants and there was a sameness to them that was about like, you know, they kind of had largely the same amount of, uh, space devoted to a few different categories. They, they were, you know, leaned heavily into the big, most popular varieties in, you know, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet, Pinot Noir, et cetera, or whatever, right? And now it's weirder, though, to me when I go out and and drink and dine that instead of that sort of broad level sameness, but with the individual kind of wines in those spots being often different, now it's more like I see a lot of the same couple dozen bottles on lists, and I find that really weird. I I, I don't know what – and I think it's something that, Adam, I think you in particular have commented about in New York as well, where there's a lot of the same bottles – being being put on these lists, especially I think about the lists that are, I mean, it's one thing, you know, it's not so true on a list that's 500 bottles yeah. long. There aren't that many of those left anymore. But on these, you know, 20 to 50 to maybe 100 bottle lists, it feels odd to me that there is so much duplication in, in restaurants in the same place, in the same city, because A, I, I just, I, I'm like, man, maybe, maybe whoever... You know, maybe the couple of distributors that sell those wines are just doing a fucking awesome job at convincing people that they're the wines they have to have. But it does feel really weird to me that that like again, people in those positions are well, either they're not taking the opportunity and the the sort of uh position they have to to sort of put some stuff on a list that they feel like distinguishes their program, or and this could also be true because some of the places I've been, I don't know who's putting the wine list together. It could also be the case that that the person putting it together is very intentionally copying another list, right? They don't have the time or the know-how and they're like, well, this other restaurant in, you know, a mile away, they seem to do well. Let's just get as many of their wines as the wines they have as we can. I don't know. That could be going on. Too. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all kind of all of the things that you just said, right? I think it is probably the distributors. I think back to the piece that you, you wrote about wines being on restaurant menus, like, and the challenges that surround that right now and the kind of, a not unwillingness, but unwillingness of wineries to do that work to get on restaurant menus. Uh, I think that there are f- fewer psalms, right? Now you have like, maybe there are beverage consultants who yep. are working with restaurants to put together their menu, their lists, yeah. right? Like, and they, <laughs> they're playing from the same playbook for different restaurants, like things like that, um, that kind of create some of the sameness that I think you're talking about. I mean, look, also... Remember, we're all sitting here. We're sitting here saying, you know, we, we've said this for months and months and months now, years. Like, we wish that that wine bars would do more work to and, and restaurants to 
find, you know, more obscure wines that are more affordable, et cetera. Values, right. right. Yep. But like we also admit that that takes education, et cetera. Yep. And the pushback that you could get from a lot of these restaurants is, yeah, but like for the wine sales that I do do, Burgundy sells right now. Right. So like is I'm, it worth is it worth it when look yeah wine is now not as big of a portion of my sales as the cocktails are that's but, another part right right yes but like but when i do sell wine it's burgundy so why would i take some of that burgundy off my list and add you know wine from greece or wine from you know an obscure region of spain Slovenia. yeah or even even from you know fort ross seaview california mm-hmm. right and try to then have to explain to you why you should, you have, should this. have this instead. Yeah. I think that's very hard. And most people don't want to do it when they think that the consumer is basically coming in to them with a general amount of knowledge, which is knowledge based on the other places they are eating. Yeah. And if everyone else has the same, it's just easy. Again, it's just easier. And we know this time and time again in every single kind of marketing case study or business case study you read the companies that ultimately become the most successful are the ones that do something differently. But it is very hard to decide to be that kind of a company or that kind of a restaurant or that kind of a program. Yeah. It just is. It's a lot easier to like be hard because it takes more effort, right? More effort like, and honestly, like and there's more, more risk. Way yeah. more guts. Yeah. Way more guts. And you know, it's the same as like we we know the data is there, right? We have said I'm not giving away any information to anyone that I have not said in every fucking meeting that I've been in for the last five years. Like we see the purchase intent data through our VinePair Insights, which fucking proves that people would drink the shit out of rose around the holiday season, November, December, etc. We know that. The the amount of search volume, et cetera, people just looking for information on rosé and pairings with holiday foods, whatever, is massive. There's never been a single fucking brand that's been like, you know what, we're going to go all in on the holidays. Why? Well, because uh, rosé, uh, I'm buying into the fact that like rosé is only for the summer. And someone will do that eventually, and I think we'll be wildly successful at it. But, and then everyone else will follow that brand. Right. And they will all not be anywhere near successful as that first brand was in the same way that – It's proof of concept, yes, right? In the same way that all these fuckers that followed in on the rosé <laughs> trend from every other fucking country that wasn't the south of France are never going to be as big as the wines from the south of France because Provence has been doing it for longer and they came in with a concerted effort with brands and spent in the U.S. first. And so it doesn't matter that you are a producer in southern Italy that thinks that you're able to create a rosé that tastes like – I don't fucking care. It's not from Provence. Like, I don't care because that's groupthink. And, like, you're never going to unseat. At this point, like, it is what it is. Do something else. But I think I think my last thing I want to say about this is and, – and I think this this conversation about – has been really interesting and, and informative for me. And, and I, I think what I remain um, – intrigued by is the notion that if someone like we're talking about cocktail programs versus wine lists right and that i think that maybe it's just that that bar programs essentially full-on copying what another successful bar does would be rightly seen as like a scandal right like 
if your wine, if your if your cocktail list was essentially just a co- like I said, a copy paste of the successful bar nearby or just a successful bar anywhere, and people figure that out, like yeah, you would get a lot of shit, and rightly so. And I think there's you know in cocktail culture, there's a certain amount of like of copying people for sure, right? Someone whether it's you know the way someone you know someone creates a drink and it proliferates, or they come up with a new technique to do something or whatever right like there's a certain amount of that kind of sharing slash stealing depending on how you think about it from people but but you don't see people wholesale lifting whole cocktail programs i don't think maybe some of our listeners have experienced this on one end or the other let us know (laughs) but i do think with like i said with wine programs it's it's much more maybe it's not the case that every single bottle is going to be the exact same as at another restaurant but i do find it weird that like it seems acceptable to be like oh we're just yeah i have like 20 of the same selections as another restaurant nearby. Like I get that, you know what you're saying, Adam, about people wanting Burgundy say, but I think the point I'm trying to make is you can give them Burgundy, but you don't have to give them the same few producers that the other people are giving them. Like there are a lot of producers in Burgundy and almost any market you're in, in in America, you're going to have access to a fair number of options there. Taste them, like put some other stuff on your list. That isn't what everyone else is stocking because I mean, I think that's a kind of a that's a way to do something with your program that is that is a selling point for it because in the end otherwise you're just sort of saying I don't know like we have nothing we have you know we have nothing to offer you besides just more of the same and that feels I feel sad to me I guess yeah sounds yeah. I mean it feels lazy yeah and uninspired right yeah and sad yeah it's not a place I want to go to is what it comes down to at least for me yeah. But I wonder if it's the same for a lot of people. So I'm curious uh, to know if you put together a wine list. Let us know at podcast at vinepair.com. And uh, I'm ending the episode. Yeah, I love it. It turns out. <laughs> I love it. You're just like. You're the captain hey, now. Bring, bring us, no, seriously, please bring us home. I'd like to see what happens. Okay. Well, Adam, Zach, I hope you both have a wonderful weekend. And I will talk to you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.